Um, I want to, I want to, if I can, uh, if I, if I am allowed to, not that you have a choice, bring you in into a common occurrence in my household. Uh, so this happens on, I would say, just about a every kind of 24-hour pattern. I'm downstairs in my basement, uh, playing with my children, whom I affectionately call the riffraff, and um, and sure enough, eventually, uh, one or all three of them run out of something, okay? Uh, now, this could be a various amount of things. Um, sometimes I feel like my children think that it's all-you-can-eat fruit snack night and that they're, like, the packs just need to keep replenishing themselves, right? So they could be beckoning for uh, Dad to go get another one of those uh, whatever uh, action figure uh, fruit snacks they have. Uh, it could be that they've run out of liquid, which is key for a child. Um, so primarily at our house, it's Mountain Dew for our kids. Um, they could have, they could have run out uh, of of some other things. Uh, food mostly is what it seems. So me being the amazing uh, father figure that I am, I, I of course uh, try to accommodate my children as best I can, and so I venture up the stairs, uh, leaving them often by themselves in the basement. Now I normally give it about five or six, sometimes seven seconds, and I kind of stand up there in the silence. It normally comes after a period of three or four seconds of silence. Uh, when a loud scream from Avery rings out from the basement. Now, this is a typical ongoing pattern. Avery screams. I give it another couple seconds, and then comes the shout, Daddy Dawson hit me, okay? Now, Dawson is my two-year-old. Uh, he has some issues with his hands at times. And, um, and so I go down again, being the great parent that I am, and sure enough, I see uh, Avery standing there, and she's crying. She's pointing to the, the piece of her uh, ailments that have been hit. Then I look at Dawson over in the corner who has his pacifier in his mouth and this stupid little dog that he uh, rubs up against his nose. Still don't understand it. And I say, Dawson, did you hit, hit Avery? Uh-huh. And, and so he's proud of it. And so then, um, then what happens in my household is we, we, get, we go through this pattern of discipline. And now I know many of you have been waiting on this moment when I tell the church like how I discipline my kids. Uh, so here you go. Um, so I, I take Dawson to another room because my son struggles paying attention to things. I'm not sure if you're the same way, but I'm not sure if I'm the same way, but he does. He's uh, quite rambunctious. So I take him to another room and then I talk him through what he's done as sin. Uh, he kind of nods his head, gives me a high five in the middle of that. I'm not sure why. Um, uh, but then it comes time for me to... to to spank him and tell him that God's called me to lead our family, and so because of that, there's consequences for your sin. And so I spank my child. Oh, Mark spanks. Yes, I do. Of course I do. Many times. Early and often, right, in our household, it seems. Um, and, and so then the next part of the process is, is the most interesting, is uh, I, I take Dawson back into the room, and Avery's uh, potentially still crying, and, uh, and so they kind of meet up, right? And so we've kind of orchestrated this little pattern between our children, right? So so Dawson comes in, and I say, Dawson, and I just, you know, just do the parent hand thing. I saw we, you know, and, and Avery says the words, you know, I forgive you, and then they hug and they kiss, and, and then we repeat all this pattern in about five minutes, right? But um, a couple days ago, all this happened, and I, I sat back when I heard Avery say the words, I forgive you. And it dawned on me in that moment, she's been trained by me to say that, it dawned on me in that moment that I really think that she has no idea what that means. Because she's been trained by me to say that phrase. And it brings some closure, I think she would say. But as far as like what the actual phrase means, I, I don't think she would know what that is. Uh, me and my wife were having a bit of a discussion a couple weekends ago. Um, 
and I don't know if your marriage or your relationship is like this at all, but uh, sometimes it seems like you argue over things that you can't even remember. Have you ever had one of these ever? Three this week? Like, I feel like uh, whenever my wife has, have somewhat of intense conversations, we like to call them around my household, it's like it's around silly things that we don't even remember. Uh, but eventually the conversation finds itself where, uh, where one of us or both of us, uh, most often me, says something that I wish I wouldn't have. And so then we exchange, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we'll say, like, do you forgive me? And of course I forgive you. I was thinking about it a couple days ago. I'm, I'm not sure that I know what that means. Like, I've been saying that phrase all my life. I forgive you. I've been thinking about forgiveness all my life. I mean, I, I grew up in the church since I was seven. And I've come to this place where I'm not so sure that I really understand what forgiveness means. I would say that that might be the same about you. Whether interpersonally, you certainly communicate a lot, or at least try, or on the church level in your understanding of the Bible, like this word forgiveness just keeps coming up, keeps showing itself. My question to you is, do you think you know what it means? If there is a night uh, from the scripture, from the text that I feel is for us, uh, this is one of those nights. I want to teach and wrestle with the doctrine of forgiveness tonight, assuming that both me and you need a long, large teaching on what this concept really means, okay? So we're doing it straight out of Hebrews, where we've been studying, so I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. The last couple weeks, uh, we took a vision uh, night uh, last Wednesday just to encourage all of you guys on what it is that we're doing here as a church. The two weeks previous to that, I want to just catch you up on what chapter 9 has been about. Uh, first slide, uh, a few weeks ago we saw this, that uh, this was the, the ancient uh, tent that was uh, instructed by God for man to build so that his people would worship him and we talk through like, all the process of the tent and the sacrifice that the priest had to go through. Uh, this, of course, was used primarily to set up what we studied in verse 11 through 14. Next slide. And that we saw that, that peace comes in the person of Christ. And so what my contention was to you is that the overarching theme of the entire scripture is go in peace. That that is the message of the gospel. Go in peace, go in peace, go in peace. Because the sacrifice apart from all other sacrifices ever killed, every animal killed in the Jewish culture, all of those sacrifices were, were sacrificed and then they died. They never rose again, but our sacrifice in Christ is alive. And so that has what has been our precursor here in chapter 9. Now we pick up in a beautiful text uh, from uh, chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. So let's uh, read together the entirety here. And then, my friends, we're just, we're just in for a treat tonight. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator... Of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16 4, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Verse 18 Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet and wool and hyssop 
and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Verse 20, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is, as the scripture says, no forgiveness of sins. And so if tonight's your first time here, it's a great night to be here and to see the process of how we deal with the text. And that's word for word, verse by verse. So let's put up verse 15 here and let's start going at it. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, all the book of Hebrews has been building upon this understanding of what covenant is. Uh, quickly, for those that are just joining us, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is this. The, the old covenant was a two-party agreement. God and man both have responsibilities, both have duties, for lack of a better term, to fulfill their side of the covenant. The whole Old Testament, however, shows us that man will fail in the old covenantal system. Man cannot keep his side of the bargain. God, of course, always does, as he always does, but man fails. The power of the new covenant that we've been looking at is this concept that now it's, it's not a two-party agreement at all. The new covenant, most seen in the power of Christ, is all based on God's ability to fulfill his promises. Therefore, I think we could all agree the new is better than the old, right? And all of it is centered around Jesus being the, what's the word here? The mediator of a new covenant. Now, unfortunately, we have a bad taste in our mouth with this term mediator. It starts in grade school. First time you like another uh, female or male. I don't know about uh, when that was for you. For me, it was in the third grade. Amy Bursler was her name. And you remember the days like when you fall first in love or you think it's love, and, th- and then you have to use someone else to communicate that love to that person. You remember that? Whether it's the passing off of a note or just a friend of yours that you think will do a much better job communicating the depth of your love for this person, that's how it rolled in early relationships. I know for some of you, uh, that still happened last week, and that's embarrassing, so please don't ever tell anyone that. But in grade school, like that was the reality, right? Like you, you send someone, and they kind of act as your mediator, and then they come back. And did this ever happen to you when they came back, and then they actually liked the person? The mediator always seemed to find themselves like in the relationship that you were hoping for. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, what happened over there? Like, you guys were only swinging for like two minutes. Like, what happened, right? It, it, it continues for us as adults, though. Uh, this is the whole premise of gossip, right? Is that as adults, we still can't deal with our own issues. Is that we're still like using other adults to have the hard conversations for us. So we have a bad taste in our mouth when it comes to someone being a mediator. Uh, Thankfully, Christ gives us an entirely different picture of what a mediator is. And I want to exalt this for a moment if I can. The power of Jesus as a mediator is that when he comes and intercedes, that's what a mediator is, someone who's making intercession, who's coming to bring peace between two parties. Jesus comes to the earth both as fully God and fully man. So he's representing God as God to the people and what we could say as a prophet communicating the mouthpiece of God to the people, while at the same time he's sympathizing with humans because he comes as fully human. And so unlike any human mediator that you've ever had in your life, the person of Christ is the ultimate mediator, both fully God and fully man on the earth, can sympathize with man and live perfectly communicating the power and the truth straight from the mouth of God. Are you with me? So that's what he's saying is Jesus 
has come as the intercessor of a new covenant so that those who are called may what? May receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now here's what I've realized over and over, and we saw it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 last week. That the Bible is packed with precious promises. And His precious promises just keep coming true. And when you are in Christ, this is the mantra of your life. You are constantly receiving the promised. Are you with me? What we see in this text, that who are called may receive the promised. In this case, it's eternal inheritance. But my friends, if you're in Christ, the mantra of your entire life is, I am receiving the promised. You are just constantly reaping the benefits of God's word that will never fail and will never return void. Are you with me? It's something to celebrate in. And in this case, what he's pointing to is this amazing picture of eternal inheritance. Nothing temporal, everything eternal. And then he says an interesting thing here at the end of verse 15. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of this, but let's at least spend a second on it. You guys see what this is saying? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So you've often wondered, and you've had conversations with your friends that are interested in the Bible, what about the Old Testament saints? What happens with them? Christ comes after most of them die. So what about them? Well, what does the Scripture say? That Christ's death, resurrection, and what he did in his redemption is enough for the sins, not just of those to come, but those who also live. Again, it would take a couple chapters for us to unpack that theory. It's just, an, it's just to say when the scripture calls uh, the grace of Christ sufficient, it means entirely sufficient. Are you with me? Okay, every saint of all time. Now let's keep going on here in verse uh, 16 and 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now what is he saying by the word will here? So we would say in one sense, like, what is the will of what? What is the will of God? That's how we would communicate one side of the word will, but that's not the case here. Uh, You remember when we were teaching on covenant that the Greek word for covenant is diakathē. Remember, everyone say that with me. Come on. Diakathē. Doesn't that roll? Doesn't it just feel nice? Yeah, it does. Come on. I'll say it for you, right? Diakathē. Now, you remember when I told you that covenant is both translated, uh, diakathē is both translated covenant, but it's also translated a will or a testament. And you guys all know what a will is. Something that someone writes describing what will happen with all of their worth when they die. Begs the question, what would be in your will? Some of you guys have a will. Others of you guys really haven't thought about it much. Uh, some of you I know are thinking, I don't even know what I would include in my will. Like for me, it's like, and who gets my Dodge Caravan? You know what I'm saying? I'm not. Who wants it? We can bargain it off right now. It's got a crack in the windshield right now. The fuel injector doesn't work. Anyone, right? Bought it for 2500 It's an awesome piece of love, right? Now in this case... And in every case, a will, what you would have in it, what you would write, who you would give your valuable things to, 
it shows what and who you value, wouldn't you say? Whatever you put in your will. And some of you guys have seen some family controversy, right? Where someone passes away and they leave their will and it wasn't quite what everyone expected, right? Like maybe a daughter or son got left out of the will or someone that they thought would be getting a large inheritance that just isn't. Can you agree with me that it shows the, the very value and worth of what is to that person? So then what of the will of Christ? If we say that a will shows what they value, what they find worth in, then what of the will of Christ? Could, could we say, could we agree that in what Jesus has done, it certainly shows his value of Father God. Scripture escalates that over and over and over, that he came in obedience to who God is. First, but couldn't we also say the value of what he has come to accomplish is so that sins could be completely forgiven. Even in this moment, tucked away in what would seem like an unnatural part of the scripture, it shows the depth and the amount of his love. So encouraging. Now, in this case, let me explain what's happening. The whole premise of verses 16 and 17 is that a will doesn't start till someone dies. That's what he's saying. Someone needs to die for the will to start. So the will won't start if someone doesn't die. So when he's speaking of Jesus, what is he saying? Jesus has to die. Now, doesn't this a little bit seem random all of a sudden? Like we're talking about the tent and worship and power of Christ, and all of a sudden, like we, we change subjects, seems like, and all, now we're like talking about someone's last will and testament. Why would this be such an interesting and poignant teaching at this part of the text? As you may know, uh, many Jews believed that the Messiah would not die. In fact, that was the exact opposite of what they thought the Messiah was. The Messiah will come, he will kick booty against all of the Romans with a big grenade launcher on the top of his, uh, on the top of his shoulder, right? He'll halo everybody, right? And, and then all of a sudden, like, we'll just ride in his train of glory. That's what everyone's picture, some people's picture of Christ was. So the very concept, as pointed to in Isaiah 53 and other passages, that the Messiah would actually die is a foreign teaching for many of these Jews. Are you with me? So to bring this up now is to reiterate to these Jewish readers that, listen, you don't understand. If you want the will to be enacted and initiated, which in verse 15 it says that part of that is the eternal inheritance. If you want that will initiated, then guess what? Jesus had to die. He had to die. So I know that's tough for you, because in your picture of what a king is, it's certainly not a dying king, but that's actually the exact purpose of Christ. He was born to die. Are we together? Now let's keep moving forward, and we'll keep building here our doctrine of forgiveness, and this will all come together. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. I had to read this verse like 25 times. Does anyone feel like this is a du double negative? I see a lot of like withouts and nots in this verse. I just had to keep reading it, right? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. I don't know. It's a little bit confusing to me. Anyway, what this is talking about is Exodus. Uh, put, put up my Exodus verse here. Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. The first covenant, just like the second covenant, was centered around this concept of blood. Here's how, and I've read this uh, verse several months ago. Moses came and told the people, this is right when the old covenant is being inaugurated. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. 
And all the people answered with one voice and said, and I, we use this phrase especially to make our point, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, when we used this passage earlier, our point was, yeah, right. And we were talking about, remember, empty promises that we make to the Lord. So he goes on, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar, an altar rather, at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Now things get really dicey. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. You remember this? It gets more interesting. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Right? I, I, I appreciate some of the laughter. Like, this is somewhat interesting, right? Can we, so we were, should I laugh? I don't know. Is, you know. is that sacrilegious? And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. His point here in Hebrews chapter 9 is even the old covenant was inaugurated with blood. And I pointed out to you last week that especially those of you who haven't been around the church, like it seems somewhat primitive. You'd be like, hey, we're well beyond this whole like animal blood sacrifice thing nowadays. It's like 2011, you know, catch up here. It feels primitive. So it's worth answering. Why is there so much focus on blood in the scripture. It's a question that maybe you've been asked before. Blood is in very connection to what? To life. And so God in setting up all of this, and I told you on every Passover, an estimated 15 to 19,000 animals were killed in one segment of period of time in the Jewish calendar. That's an insane amount of blood. All of that blood spilt is all pointing to the one final blood that would be spilt in Christ, you see? And all of it connected with life. So that's why blood is significant, but not just blood, death. It would be one thing just to prick someone's finger and say, well, look, I've I've bled as a sacrifice. No, no, no. For the will to be enacted, you have to bleed and die. Are we together? Now you're like, so what does this have to do with forgiveness? I'm glad you asked. Here we go. Next slide. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, just escalating again how much blood was used in the old covenant. Verse 20, interesting, saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Did you notice in the Exodus 24 passage that we just read that this was quoted? This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Now, can I ask you, for some of you, this will not be, uh, you will not recognize this at all. For others of you, does that ring a bell at all? This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So Moses quotes it in Exodus chapter uh, 24. We see it here in Hebrews chapter 9, and then we also see it in Matthew chapter 26. And he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is what? My blood of the covenant. Whoa, 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 whoa. You see? So Moses quotes it, Exodus 24, Hebrews escalates it, and 
And the difference of when Moses said it is Moses said, the blood. And Jesus says, my blood. For this is my blood of the covenant, the exact phrasing except my, which is poured out for many for what? For the forgiveness of sins. Let me ask you this. You're a disciple. You've been following Christ for a few years. You've seen incredible things. You've seen demons being casted out. You've seen people being healed of sicknesses. You've heard the best teaching that had truth that cut you. So if you were Peter, James, and John, you saw the transfiguration. If you were Peter, James, and John, you saw the healing of Jairus' daughter. You as a disciple have seen a tremendous amount of things. And as a disciple, you have been in the typical rhythm of the Passover. We make preparations. We come together as a family. We, we uh, quote some psalms. We sing some songs. We make sacrifice. And we celebrate the Passover. But this Passover, as I've alluded to before in our past, is completely different. But can I ask you this? If you're a disciple and you see these words, my blood, and then all of a sudden it's connected with forgiveness of sins can you for just a minute put yourself around that table and hear that phrase for the first time my blood forgiveness of sins I believe and I've seen this now more than ever in this week that this thought would be just messing and grabbing both their head and their heart Hold on, can you say that last part again? I, I, I caught the blood part because that's, I'm used to that in my rhythm. But you said my blood, didn't you? The disciples knew the rhythm. They knew the Passover. They knew what came next. My was completely different. And it was never attributed with forgiveness of sins in terms of Jesus' sacrifice. You see? They had celebrated the Passover, uh, the Passover before is my point. Jesus and the disciples had been together before on the Passover. But on this one, he says, my blood is for the forgiveness of sins. So it, it begs the question just initially, well, what does that word even mean? Aphasis is the Greek word. It means remission of penalty. It implies something that's been burdened, and now it's carried. Aphasis, forgiveness. It implies being lifted. Just to make sure I get it right, it implies release from bondage or imprisonment. So they hear it in their language. Forgiveness of sins. And what they're hearing is, Release from imprisonment, releasing from bondage, remission of penalty. Imagine just for a moment what that would have been like, that moment in time hearing that phrase. Now tuck that away and let's keep moving. Verse uh, 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tents, still speaking of Moses here, and all the vessels used in worship. He's reiterated his point over and over and over. Uh, blood is a big deal in the Old Covenant. Okay, are we together? He's like, and it was just flying everywhere, right? On people, on the tent, on the book, on, you know, with hyssop. Now look at this. This is interesting. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. This for me is one of the humorous moments in Scripture. R rarely do you see 
almost everything in the, in the Bible, right? Chosen very wisely, inspired by God, written by, you know? Because there were three things. Incense, fire, and water that at a few random points in Scripture were used to purify. Uh, also, if you were poor, you're, you, know, you guys know what you would give us uh, for sacrifice? There were a couple different things. Pigeons would be one, but another would be like flour. If you can give an animal at times, as a Jew and you were completely poor, at times you would just, you would give flour. Not like flowers, flour, right? Like the cheapest of thing that makes your leaven. And so at times, things outside of blood were used to purify. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No remission of penalty. No releasing from bondage. So let me ask you this. Can you imagine a world where there is no forgiveness? Can you imagine a world where there is never a release from the bondage of your sin? Is that even fathomable? The reality is it is to us all. Because pre-Christ, all of us were there. For those of us that don't know Jesus, haven't placed our trust in Christ, like that's exactly where you are right now. There is no release from bondage. You're living in a world with no forgiveness. And for those that have come to Christ, placed their trust in Jesus, that His sacrifice and resurrection means something, you remember the days when it felt like there was no release from bondage or imprisonment. My contention is this, guys. I don't feel like we know what this means. I feel like we've been trained and taught forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And what I want to show you here in a moment is I feel like it's here and it's here, but it's not here. We can recite it because we know it to be true. And it's our only hope. And so we know we just better communicate it as much as possible. But just like my little girl, my little boy, it's just words. So let me ask you this. Uh, next slide. Uh, what's your... This is one of my favorite slides of all time. Worked hard on this. Uh, what's on your list? So if right now you were to have to go through and uh, write down literally everything that you had ever sinned, and you just had to record it all and put it on a, a big piece of paper like this, what would be on that list? It's kind of silly to think about because you're like, well, there's no possible way I could ever remember all of it. Isn't that the overwhelming piece of it all? I mean, it, isn't that... Isn't that very thing the power of it? There's no way you, like, you could ever recall all of your sin, and yet the scripture says, while you were yet a sinner, he died. Like, I would imagine, unfortunately, for many of you, there's a few, next slide, there's a few of those sins that stand out. Is that the case for you? As you're like thinking through this list, there's a few of them kind of like stand out. They feel more significant than others. They feel unforgivable. 
Now listen, I know, I know that many of you would say I've been forgiven for those few that stand out, but do you really believe it? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, of course, the, the, the cross is completely, but in your heart, it's haunting you. It's haunting you. It comes up over and over and over. It's like you can't get rid of it. You feel so condemned. You feel like we're back in the world where there's no forgiveness of sins. Next slide. What is it like if, if they're just all gone? You think in your mind and your heart, is that even possible? Is it ever even possible for all of those sins, even the big ones, to ever just go away? Here's what the Bible says in 1 John. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive, same word as before, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, okay, that makes sense, right? So if I want all of my sins gone, then, then I'll, I, what I need to do now is I need to confess those sins. And I mean, I need to confess them. And I need to confess them on an ongoing basis. And I'm just going to let them keep coming out of my mouth. That's what, I'll, that's what I'll do. That's what I need to do. And so that's what we do. We confess our sins. Still feels distant from here. Still at times feels like we're just confessing them because we know we're supposed to. And the Bible says that that's when forgiveness comes in. And so then we can make this statement. Next slide. Then we just say, I'm forgiven, right? I've confessed my sins. I am forgiven. I feel like this is one of the most dangerous statements a Christian can ever make. It's not complete. But this is the statement that's driving us. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. It's incomplete. And what I see this statement fostering is an attitude that sees God as sitting up on his throne, and when we confess our sins to him, this is what he says, it's all right. Why do we think that? Because that's what we do. Someone comes to us and someone says, I'm sorry. And what do we say? If we don't say we forgive you, we say, it's cool, it's fine, it's all right. Let me tell you this, God never says it's all right. If it was our right, then the penalty wouldn't be costly. The penalty was costly. It was his son who came and obediently lived and bled on a cross and felt it and knew it. It was costly. And so sin is not our right. But it is completely appeased in the sacrifice of Jesus. Making forgiveness possible, do you see? And I feel like, at least in my existence, I'm constantly going to God. Hey God, I, 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 here I am again, and I'm just, I'm just confessing to you. And I know your Bible says, I know your word says that I'll be forgiven. And so here I am. And then I just, I get that over, yes, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. Because I picture God saying, Mark, it's cool, Mark, it's cool. 
But then I'm brought back to Matthew 26, which said this, remember? And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. This is my blood. It's not a sacrifice of an animal anymore. I've come as Christ, as fully God and fully man, and I've come, and I'm sacrificing my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's not just I'm forgiven. This is the statement that we should own. I am forgiven because of Jesus. And that statement, my friends, should get pounded in our dome every minute of every day. It's not just I am forgiven. That breeds in us a thought that it's just all right. It's not all right. Our sin is disastrous and it deserves a penalty and death. And Christ has owned all of that. So that you could be out of prison. Now here's our next problem. I don't feel forgiven. I hear this a lot. I think this a lot. When will we stop working off just emotion? I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel forgiven. I don't feel like, like all the things that Christ has, I just, I just don't feel it. What we do is we put our human emotions on a good, holy God who created it all. And we think that somehow we can understand all of the ways of God because we feel things. I don't feel like I'm forgiven. And you know what you do in that moment? If you've confessed, completely clung to the cross of Christ, and you're still saying, I just don't feel forgiven, you're letting the consequences of sin dictate forgiveness. Forgiveness never says in its definition, there won't be consequences. There are consequences. Some of you, because of the things that you have done in your life, will forever be dealing with the consequences of your sin. They will manifest themselves deeply, but that does not mean you are not forgiven. But in our human emotion, we sit back and we're, no way God can forgive me of that. And I want to tell every single one of you tonight, because I feel like this is the word that each of you need to hear. You can come out of the prison because of Jesus. I am forgiven because of Jesus. That's it. You can be forgiven because of Jesus. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what emotions are linked to these past sins that you still feel condemned for. Forgiveness can come And will come through Christ. And so he says, he had to die and he had to bleed. And because of that, there is forgiveness of sins. Will you stand with me? So last thing. I desire my kids and my conversations with my wife when the words words are uttered out of my mouth, forgive. 
at every moment and every turn and every sense, I wanted to keep coming back to Jesus. And so for those of you that feel like there's that four or five, that there's no way you, you'll ever be forgiven, cling to Jesus. For those of you that, that feel like, like I, I just I have this overwhelming sense that because of all of these consequences that this sin created in my life, all of the muck that, that my life has become because of that, and you're believing this lie then that forgiveness isn't possible, you're then making a mockery of what Christ has done. The power of the cross and an empty tomb is that we have forgiveness because of Jesus. So let's not sell it short anymore. Let's celebrate it. Let's sit in it. Let's bask in it. Let's not take it for granted or take advantage of it. But let's say, thank you, God. Because I have life now. So cling to Christ, all of you. Whether it's your first time or after 23 years of being a Christian like me. God, I pray that you'll do a work in my brothers and sisters. That you will permeate our hearts. That you will increase our faith to believe and trust that forgiveness is ours because of your son, Jesus. So God, I just confess to you that we cling to him now. Please comfort my hurting brothers and sisters in this room and help them know the power of being set free.